0: Welcome to another episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast, where it's all bicycle tech all the time. I'm James Wong. I'm Kaylee Fritz, And I'm Dave Rome. And once again, our resident pro mechanic, Zach Edwards of the Boulder Groupetto is unfortunately sending this one out while we all continue to record remotely for a little while, uh, but we hope to have him back on pretty soon, actually. And in the meantime, we still have another fantastic show for you today. So first and foremost, how's everyone doing? Good looks like
1: dave
2: got a new well, microphone
1: set up is that what is what's going on over there oh
2: this this is this is the old one i just uh, moved my camera so now you can actually see it um, oh. just showing it off for all the viewers which is very fancy just
0: james and kaylee Yeah. Da- <laughs> um, <laughs> i mean da- dave you Super are fancy dave you are a fan of you know foam of various incarnations i mean obviously you have this big little hemisphere of foam behind your microphone and you're big onto like foam and your toolboxes and stuff and do like, mm-hmm. you have a padded room in your house or anything, too?
2: Uh, I have a drawer next to me, so my office desk drawer is uh, foam cut out with uh, the tools I use often, just like just nearby so I can reach for an mm-hmm. Allen key or a tape measure. So, so that's you, that's quite interesting. Wait, 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 um, wait, I,
1: wait, 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 wait. You have yeah. Allen keys in your office desk? I don't know if
2: anyone can hear that. This like, doesn't click. make good podcast content, but you, anyway. Yeah. You, got, you like clink them together <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, So, (laughs) um, but yeah, I was considering
0: cutting out the foam uh, microphone booth to like install some Allen keys in that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Well, in the meantime, you, you have a a drawer lined with your, your favorite Kaizen foam for your, your Allen keys and your pens and pencils and rulers and tape measure and all that sort of thing. Dave, you, you know, I I would say that you need help, but that is also the reason why we love you.
2: (laughs) Oh, thanks Uh guys.
0: Kaylee, do we have a sponsor today? We do
1: have a sponsor today. In fact, our sponsor is our corporate overlords at Pink Bike. Hmm. The most uncorporate overlords we could possibly imagine. No, our, our big news and the and the sponsor for this week's episode is the new Pink Bike podcast which we're super excited about we actually we sat down and made a podcast with pink bike guys when we were down in sedona it's sort of like a practice podcast i don't think it actually ever even saw the light of day even though it it was quite good but anyway they've started their own podcast mike levy is hosting the thing along with all the editors of pink bike yeah and they're talking about all kinds of stuff so for example they're on episode four right now just went up today and it's titled why is every bike a trail bike. What defines a trail bike? Travel geometry, special acronyms. We've got Levy, Casimir, Brian, James all chatting about, should I say dif- different James, not our James. I was going to say, not me. All chatting about, nope, nope, nope. All chatting about why is every bike a trail bike? They've talked about mountain bike tech from Pond Beaver. They've chatted about the Grim Donut. If anybody follows Pink Bike on the Pink Bike social media channels, you've probably seen the Grim Donut, the oh, crazy. Oh, it's brilliant. Super slack, very progressive mountain bike created by our friends over at Pink Bike. And an episode on why are bikes so expensive. So awesome podcast. I was given it a listen last night. Super enjoyable. They're super funny, super informative. Highly recommended. Go check out the Pink Bike Podcast. It's easy as that. That's the name. Wherever you get your podcast. So whatever app you're using to listen to this podcast right now, just go ahead and search the Pink Bike Podcast and find it let's chat about our stuff
0: yeah what what do we got going on in this week's nerd alert we actually have a lot going on to so you know speaking of pond beer for those of you who have not been keeping up uh pond beer is sort of what we and pink bike or i guess i should say pink bike and us since we borrowed it from pink bike um It's basically our version of a virtual Sea Otter since Sea Otter is not happening uh, or I should say didn't happen like it should have and has now been postponed for October. Instead, so we went ahead and basically had a bunch of virtual video meetings with a whole bunch of brands and collected a bunch of news that we otherwise would have gotten at Sea Otter. Um, So we've been pretty busy with news. And one of the biggest ones, I'd say, over the last few days, this this one actually just hit, um, let's see, I guess last Tuesday, uh, is... Silka, the company that you know, you know and love for you know really expensive bicycle pumps and all sorts of other tire accessories sort of things, um, they released their own chain lube. Which uh, this is not the first time they've had a chain lube, but now they're aiming pretty high here, and they are claiming that this is the, I guess, basically the fastest drip on lube that is going to be on the market. Uh, Dave, do I have that right?
2: Yeah, I think I think that's the claim there or one of the fastest, but also um, you know, meant to be nice and durable and easy to apply and and all that. So it's sort of you know, as a whole of what you want out of a chain loop, they're they're claiming that it's it's gonna be the best thing.
0: So what makes this special uh, though?
2: So, so I mean I think we're coming to a, a pretty special time in the world of Chain Loops where there's been some <laughs> really good research. I know, I know, that sounds ridiculous. It, it but is, there has been some really Dave. good research into the area.
1: Oh, man. What, a spe- a spe- what did I say? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a ver- it's very special time. You're, you're right. It's super special. It's It's the golden era. It's... We're gonna be looking back at this time in 20 years' time and just being like All right, oh, back man. to the, the good old time days? for Chain Lube. little bit of the good old days when
0: little re- released their Chain Lube? Oh man, mm-hmm. I'm bit of a little bit of a little bit of a little bit of a little Tuesday, April a little bit of a little bit of a little bit of a so i'm not
2: going to give a the give... i will give Friction Facts, the credit, and I'll give uh, Zero, Fr- uh, Zero Friction Cycling, the credit, who have done all the research that have then allowed Josh Portner and Silka to come out with this lube. Uh, but yeah, basically, Josh Portner, he's he's been clearly paying attention to a lot of the studies done around um, the correlation between efficient chain loops that also improve your drivetrain durability. Uh, and he's clearly taken a lot of notes around the chain loops existing on the market that perform best in those regards. Uh, and he's just tweaked them. So, uh, you know, we haven't tried it, uh, but on paper it's it's sounding pretty good. It's it's not too far removed from chain loops that, you know, James, you and I, we were we we're already using, such as, as Squirt or um, Smooth in my case, which is like a wax-based lube. Uh, but he's just added some very low friction um, modifiers to it, and sort of tweaked the recipe, and yeah, claiming it's faster and just as easy to apply and more durable.
0: So yeah, I think it All makes right. sense. But I guess the big thing here is that whereas I mean, kind of the ultimate train, the ultimate chain setup now is to. You know, completely strip your chain dry, like get everything off it, get it down to bare metal, which ideally you still have to do with this stuff. Um, but whereas mm. from there, you normally have to take that and put it in this, you know, crock pot basically full of fancy additive enhanced paraffin wax. Um, Josh is claiming that you can now get the same effect just by starting with a clean chain and then just dripping it on like any other lube. So it would be a lot easier to put on and it, it, it would be kind of nice if I could get rid of the crock pot off my test bench, but
1: and for those of us without a Sonic cleaner thingamajig,
3: what would be very nice. What?
1: Wait, what? Supersonic, you, hypersonic. don't have one. <laughs> That's uh, yeah, no Sonic, the hedgehog cleaner at my house whatsoever. I, I'll
2: give you my spare. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm so still no, stuck like on this, this being this... our
1: Woodstock moment. I'm just really excited about this time, and I'm I'm <laughs> screenshotting our Google Hangout to make sure that we remember it forever.
0: Uh, okay, well, it's maybe, maybe something that people will be a little bit more excited about. Uh, power meters are getting really pretty seriously inexpensive now. Um, you know, stages announced a while ago that they had dropped the price for their. Uh, factory install single side power meter so basically you send in their crank arm and they stick on a power meter um they had dropped their price for that version to uh three hundred dollars us and four eyes just announced a little while ago they have matched that price as well and you know prices have you know actually, or actually to back up even further than that quark announced that they had dropped their prices for quite a bit for their uh spider based power meters so I mean, this is a good trend for consumers everywhere. And I, and I have to say, I think it's one that we probably all expected to happen. Um, but even though we all expected it, it's still nice that it actually is happening now anyway. Would you say it's the
2: golden age of power meters?
0: <laughs> Woodstock.
1: Uh, no, we're basically, we're basically now where you, you could buy a power meter for how much a heart rate monitor cost 20 years ago twenty five years ago right like a couple hundred bucks for for a nice one right and that's all it is now and that's pretty amazing because it's really it sort of democratizes that type of training which is nice I mean you know I remember being a college kid and having like twelve dollars to my name and struggling to figure out how to get myself a power meter because I was trying to become a a good bike racer at that point in time at that point in my life and really being unable to find anything that would possibly work because you know, we're talking mid two thousands, and they were fifteen hundred bucks, two thousand bucks, three thousand bucks, and I didn't have that much money. Now, the fact that you can get a power meter for
0: three hundred dollars or
1: less—that's
0: pretty amazing. Which is, I I love this. Which is especially good considering that now uh, I still don't have fifteen hundred or two thousand dollars to dedicate to a power meter. <laughs> Nor do I have any interest in spending that much money on a power meter. No, 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 no. Uh, but if power is not so interesting. We have some new wheels from industry 9 that, that just came out um, you know this is a company out of North Carolina that does a lot of their work in manufacturing in-house in Asheville uh, which in and of itself is pretty cool um, but they have a new line of uh, aluminum wheels that basically is an update to their ultralight rim which is you know basically got a little bit wider it did get slightly slightly heavier but with a 25 mil internal width and they're really awesome hubs. Um, you know you have your option of bladed stainless steel spokes or custom anodized aluminum spokes which make for a you know makes for a slightly heavier but also much much stiffer wheel um i mean it's pretty cool they're not terribly priced at all i mean they they start at what like 1200 ish us dollars you know certainly not cheap but for what you get they're really really good wheels I and mean, like i I've, I've bought several sets of industry 9 hubs and wheels myself and i'll take it I mean, I think it's a good, good, good way to go.
2: Uh, am I right in thinking that that's using a new hub as
0: well, like a lower price? No, hub? actually, that's a separate thing. So the it's not. The, the new oh, ultralight okay. or the the updated ultralight wheels use the same torch road hubs that they've had in the past, but they do have a new okay. range of lower cost road. Uh, sorry, they do have a new range of lower cost hubs uh, called the. I think they're calling it the 101. It's written one slash one, so I guess I'm not really sure how, how it's turned, But um, I mean, they, they introduced this range on the mountain bike side last year, and they've now added it on the road side. It's basically just sort of a, a semi simplified version of what they had before. Um, it's still four degree engagement. It's two sets of three paws, and they're kind of they're 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 synced out of phase, um, so you get a pretty speedy that so you get that pretty speedy engagement. But you know you don't have custom color options. You know they're all uh, regular J band spokes, and like so they did put some stuff in there to make them easier to manufacture, and that's basically why they are gotcha. so much cheaper. And they're they're several hundred, I think it's a couple hundred dollars cheaper than their torch range, which is quite a lot. Um, and a brand that we're we're big fans of. They make really good stuff. They do make really good stuff, and I'd say they're just kind of good people all around. I feel like they just it's a good company to support. Yeah. Um, Speaking of wheels and tires, uh, Italian company – or I guess we can't even really call them an Italian company anymore because I guess Alberto is now in Switzerland. Um, But Effetto Mariposa, uh, the company that brings you – or that brought you the cafe latex tire sealant, the stuff that kind of foams up in your tire. Um, They have a nifty tire plug kit now called uh, Tapabuco, which I think Tapabuco basically means plug the hole. So it's pretty – Pretty straightforward name, um, but it's kind of neat that it's, it's basically just a, uh, a plug kit that lives inside your handlebar, which in and of itself is not necessarily a new concept. I think um, the Samurai Sword, if I, if I remember correctly, the guys out of South Africa, they were the first to come up with that idea, um, basically from all the frequent punctures that people get at the Cape Epic. Uh, what's nice about the Tapabuco though, is it also fits in your crankset spindle for most cranks anyway. And the big thing is it also comes in two fork widths. So if you have, if you're worried about bigger cuts on a mountain bike tire, you can go with a regular three and a half mil width, or if you have uh, more like a rotor gravel setup, you can go with a narrow one and a half millimeter setup, which it, I, it's nice to have the choice.
1: I am of the opinion that if you are riding tubeless tires, you should be riding with tubeless plugs. It's just it's a no-brainer to me i mean it, it, by the time you have sealant and plugs it it takes a pretty severe cut to to have it not be able to fix on the side of the road like the yeah. the, the, the size of the hole before you have to throw a tube in there is suddenly
2: much 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 larger than if you are just relying on sealant alone yeah. yeah you're basically it's a sidewall cut that you're using for a tube and everything else yeah and then be all right with as far plugs. as yeah.
0: as far as fixing a flat goes i mean if you're running tubeless and you have a plug kit that's easy to access it's actually easier and quicker to fix a flat with tubeless now than if you had a tube in there because you don't have to take anything off you just yeah. hop off plug the hole and add some air you're good to go in theory anyway yeah plugs are sweet i love it yeah. so finally we have a new helmet from pot which is super super niche it's called the ventral tempest it's basically the same as their ventral air but instead of punching out the holes for the vents uh, when they put the outer shell on, they just leave it covered. So um, it's sort of like if you covered up your regular puck helmet with tape, I guess. Well, so the UCI says that they can't
1: use removable covers, right? Because it, then it's a fairing, I guess, uh, which is not legal under UCI rules. This is one of those kind of silly UCI rules where, you know, like, like why? Like what, what? what is, what's the purpose here? But, yeah, they're not allowed to have a removable cover. So, POC because the team wanted sort of a solid helmet for both bad weather and for aerodynamic purposes, made this helmet that has no holes. It's just a silly.
0: It's like a, it's like a UCI rulebook workaround thing. It's kind of kind of silly. Kind of silly, but I guess if you are, you know, we don't really have to worry a whole lot about persistent wet weather here in colorado but i guess maybe if we were living in the pacific northwest or the uk i mean i guess in that sort of respect i would maybe have a lot more interest in that we don't ride in a lot of tempests around here no no weather's pretty good weather's pretty good but i will say anyone who is wearing a bicycle helmet is concerned about well they should be concerned anyway about bicycle helmet safety since that is the primary reason why you are wearing a helmet, and. Seeing as how safety has been sort of, I guess, a much, much bigger topic of conversation over the last couple of years, um, I figured it would be kind of interesting to, I guess, you know, no pun intended, Dave, uh, pick the brain of someone in the industry who is, you know, really plugged into what's going on and that sort of thing. And that was uh, Brad Waldron of Cali Protectives. You know, Cali is a helmet that... Cali is a helmet company that's been around for quite a while. Um, they've kind of flown under the radar for a bit, I would say. Maybe not as – you know, certainly not as well-known as you know, Jiro and Bell and Specialized and those sorts of companies. Um, but they have a lot of really interesting safety-minded tech stuff that they integrate in there. And uh, Brad's got some really interesting ideas. So why don't we take a break from all this tech news and see what Brad has to say. with Brad Waldron, who is the owner and lead engineer of helmet company Cali Protectives. Brad, thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, for, for ages, bicycle helmets have been evaluated on stuff like, you know, weight and ventilation, comfort, even aerodynamics. And, you know, helmet safety, you know, better late than never, I guess, has really only started becoming a hot topic pretty recently. Now, uh, I mean, I've been aware of you and your company for quite a while. And I know that you have kind of always put safety at the top of the priority list for Cali, you know, basically since day one. Now, where does that come from? Like why Why have you done that when every other companies seem, seem to be going in another direction?
3: Well, um, I had been making helmets for other people. And uh, I have a carbon fiber background, originally from an aerospace company, and I was uh, working and running a carbon fiber factory actually in China that was feeding a helmet company, motorcycle helmets. And, you know, we had a helmet for another brand that wasn't testing out as well as they had hoped. And they brought it to me and I was looking at this and I'm, and I'm seeing a double spike in G forces. So basically when the impact hits the outer shell, the, the shell so hard, the G forces spike up as that shell starts to break down. Um, the g-forces fall and then you hit the hard eps foam and uh the g-forces spike up again and and so i'm looking at this i'm going well that's happening because there's a gap between the foam and the shell Uh, how do we get rid of that gap well simply like bicycle helmets had done way before that and had become much better products by doing so i said why aren't you in molding these and of course they looked at me like i was crazy because (laughs) it was well it's a processing problem um the, the way that the the foams that we use are expanded, it's a it's a it's a, uh, a steaming process, and with a full shell in the way, it um it it traps in the water and you can't get it out. So coming again back from an aerospace background, where I was in composites R and i I I'm like, well, let's try this, and it took about two years for us to figure out how to produce. Uh, a full shell motorcycle helmet and then later a downhill mountain bike helmet by, that's that is in molded and um once we did that we found we could uh we could thin the shell down because you got the foam backing it up we could uh reduce the foam density and and now that that transfer of energy was way more efficient and you know So it really started a lot from there. Um, I did work at Specialized in their helmet uh, department for quite a long time and learned a lot about helmets. But it wasn't until we really got into uh, first the motorcycle side that – and safety became much more in our faces, right? Like you said, MIPS came out and was the first big innovation that people were talking about. Um, And, yeah, people wanted to know, and and we came up with a way to make – first a safer motorcycle helmet and then it's expanded into what we do now
0: and just just to put things in perspective i mean how how many years ago was it that you kind of made that discovery with that d- double spike in g-forces at that uh, when you were working on motorcycle helmets it's
3: almost 14 13 14 years ago so this is hardly new to you anyway oh no um you know some of the things that we've been working on and uh, people are just starting to use now we were first to use what's called the conehead technology that's where you got geometric shapes inside your helmet um and and it's kind of like uh crumple zones and we're not the only people to use it but we started using it almost out of the gate with cali 10 years ago uh an invention by a physicist from australia don morgan where you put these cone shapes in and as the energy hits that top of that cone it crushes and as it gets harder, it sends the energy laterally away from your head. Now that's actually fairly commonplace. Um, uh, Fly just came out with a helmet with it. Uh, I know Fox uses uh, some of that technology as well as um, what we call our low density layer. We've been using for at least eight years. I believe all helmets are too hard. It's based on how our standards are written. Um We basically in the seventies took cat cadavers and dropped them on their heads and, uh, measured for skull fracture. It wasn't anything to do with brain trauma, but it was what we knew at the time. So it, we determined that it took 300 Gs to crack a skull. And so that became our standard. If you hit it 300 Gs, you might not live. (laughs) And so it's, it's just reality. It's a lot of force, but, um, our standards haven't changed much, uh, and for sure they've saved a lot of lives. But um, you know, the technology has moved very quickly. Uh, I'm actually afraid of changing the standards a little bit because if you change the standards now, is it going to take another fifty years to change it? With as fast as the technology is moving, um, you know, the the people who are really following the research and being involved are staying up on that. You know, not just me, other companies as well.
0: Well, I kind of want to get into that, actually, so that's a, actually a perfect segue. Um, so when we're looking at bicycle helmet safety, I mean, what does it mean, in your opinion, for a bicycle helmet to actually be safe, and how do you know?
3: Super hard. I mean, you know, the, I test my helmets at like five different test labs, and I get different results in each test lab. And so even I have a difficult time with my own helmets, Who, who's, which lab do you trust you trust the one that gives you the best results well no i don't think so i don't think that's the best way to go about it so we we test in multiple labs so that we can get more information um, and more data to you know figure out for us what we think is the best helmet we can make but for the consumer it's really hard um you know you know you know the brands that do spend the time uh, you know, frankly, some brands come out and it's more dr- design driven. How many vent holes do you have? Uh, you know, what's it look like? And then there's the brands that, that balance that really well. And then there's the ones that focus on safety.
0: Right. I mean, cause I mean, I'm, I'm not intending to knock on Cali at all, but I mean, I guess you could even make the argument that, I mean, for a while, I mean, you have been so almost single-mindedly focused on safety that a lot of the other stuff that people would consider important in helmets has, not been your highest priority it,
3: it hasn't if uh, you you're making me smile here for <laughs> i mean in some ways i'm proud of that i mean safety has been our you know number one driving force and it has hurt us um there are times when people go you know man you're your <laughs> look you know I, I buy the safety story but you guys you know your graphics aren't there uh and those kind of comments um you know we we've gotten better uh in fact uh we just brought in um somebody that was uh, head of design uh for specialized for 17 years now on our team um and we're super stoked to have him and and we are paying attention to that more but uh the i guess the story i can tell you is that when i created an office for him somebody had left on the wall safety before design <laughs> and he's like he's looking at that going can we adjust that a little bit, about <laughs> like safety with design? And, you know, I, I tell everybody this. As long as I'm still in this position and I'm in charge, um, safety is going to be our number one focus. We're going to do the research. Um, we're going to follow, you know, we're, the, the university research, our own research uh, – you know, We work with professors, primarily been working with uh, a professor out of the Imperial College of London who started a company called Rion with a, a low-density layer material that we use. Um, but it's back – so that brings me back to the whole helmets are too hard. We need to be putting softer stuff next to our heads, and and we, we need to take care of the whole range. But when 80 percent of all crashes are below 100 Gs and our, um, our standards are 300 Gs, well, all I have to do is pass that 300G. It says nothing about low G. We don't even have anything about rotation in our standards, although all of us are now – not all of us. Some of us are testing for rotation.
0: Right. Well, that, uh, that, that does kind of lead me into this, this thing I wanted to ask you about with uh, sort of testing versus reality. I mean I've always strongly held the opinion that you know, objective lab testing is great. For the most part. But I mean, only if the test is designed in a way that either kind of closely mimics what really happens in the real world, I mean, or at least provides some sort of useful information. So I mean, given that the majority of helmet standards and test protocols that are out right now have been designed to, you know, with with the goal of preventing skull fracture, how have things changed with regard to the fact that everyone now is looking at, you know, kind of traumatic brain injuries now and not necessarily like literally cracking your skull?
3: Right. Well, you know, I'll go back to uh, start with bringing up MIPS again. Uh, you know, MIPS MIPs came to me when I was at Specialized like 20 years ago. So, you know, people look at MIPS as a new thing, but this was research done by Dr. Holder uh, at, in Sweden. And people started saying, wait, these crashes aren't just people falling, you know, straight down out of the sky on their heads. It's, you know, people are, are hitting – And spinning their brain and and these rotational forces are are a real problem. But even that is tested in the test lab. So um, a couple things that we do to try and uh, look at the reality of the crashes is we – I've been doing this from the beginning. Uh, Anytime anybody would send me a message saying that they crashed and often it was thank you kind of thing. And I would say, if you send me your helmet, I'll send you a new one. And um, so I would get these helmets back and I would study them, see if they crashed uh, – if they compressed or broke the way that I anticipated. Sometimes they did. Sometimes they didn't. But from that, we actually – now it's it's a part of our policy that uh, you crash our helmet. You'll get a free one in replace for that helmet. And really the idea is so that I can study them. So I get two – two, three helmets a week, maybe. Um, I prefer when I get less because that means people are crashing less. <laughs> um, I, but we do, we study them. I often talk to the people that crashed uh, and and we we learn from that. Um, I could go through examples of areas where I've actually changed helmets due to that feedback. Um, the, the most famous one that we have is um, when we first put out our new low density layer uh about three months before red bull rampage in 2015 i i I had a new version of this low density layer we call it ldl and i personally glued them into nikolai Rogotkin's helmet where he was going to go ride red bull rampage so um if you want to review the red bull rampage crash on youtube uh it's quite a crash but he he made a misstep and he fell down a hill, uh, down the side of the mountain, really. And you can see where he first hits his head, and his head just spins really quickly. And we believe that our low-density layer helps reduce those rotational forces. We had already been testing at the Rion Labs in London. And what we did was we had the video. Well, she finished the Nikolai crash a little bit. So he gets down this 30-foot side of this hill, he kinda he's racked. He he for sure has had some level of brain trauma. But he does get up and he kind of shakes it off and he finishes his run. Um he didn't pull off his backflip and things like that like he had anticipated, but he did get up and, and finish the run. So here we have the helmet in our hands. We can see exactly on the outside where it was impacted. We took it back to the lab and we set up the lab in the position where we could see that he hit from slow motion video on top of it, the professors figured out the speed at which he most likely hit, which was 6.1 meters per second, which is roughly equivalent to a two meter free fall. And so we went back and we tested the helmet, the same helmet, well, not the exact same helmet, the same kind of helmet and, excuse me, and tested it with and without our low density layer. And we found that he went from having The likelihood of being knocked out from about fifty percent, well, from about ninety percent down to about fifty percent. So we didn't take away all the energy. We can't do that. Nobody can do that. Your brain is a bowl of mush. It's gonna move no matter what we do. We're just trying to slow down that the effects of of that impact.
0: Got it. And I guess just to 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 inform people who don't know what you're talking about with the LDL. I mean, if you've ever looked inside the a Cali helmet that has this feature, it's sort of like the kind of like. Baby blue, like octopus tentacle sucker looking things that are <laughs> inside there.
3: Yes. Um, again, you know, the, the idea is twofold to knock down those rotational forces, but also start dissipating energy immediately on contact. If you take your helmet, no matter whose helmet it is mine, your favorite brands, whatever, and you kind of push on it, that thing feels hard. And you're supposed, that's supposed to, you know, you know, reduce the concussions that you're going to have. Well, it does, but it does at the higher rates. So the idea of the blue octopus suction cuppy things is to start dissipating energy immediately on contact at 10 G's rather than starting to kick up at 75 G's. We actually can be knocked out at, according to Dr. Plant, 74 G's. If your helmet's not you know, starting to dissipate the energy before that, your likelihood of being knocked out is, is quite high. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners have been around somebody that's crashed, didn't get knocked out, but clearly had a concussion. Well, those are somewhere around 50, 60 Gs. So we need to be taking care of the full range. And that's kind of where my focus has been uh, most recently.
0: So given that, I mean, I think it's awesome that you are you know, trying to be so much at the forefront of, you know, kind of how testing should mimic real world impacts. But I mean, with all these different test protocols and standards that are out right now, how do you know who's doing what? I mean, are the test protocols that are out, well, let me back up a little bit, the test certifications that are out right now, I mean, are those just, you know, basically like standardized, standardized tests that a helmet company just has to tick off the box so that can so that they can sell them or are they actually useful
3: uh, check off the box okay it's, I, it's it, you know if basically to sell the helmet in the US you have to pass the CPSC standards and that that standards are laid out on, on a few different tests um, there's test labs that will do that for you, that kind of testing for you. And, you, you know, you, you get the test results back and it says pass, it says, or it says fail. Um, how much you want to dive into how well your helmet passed through them is, is an individual thing for each brand. Um, most responsible brands, um, will know well before it goes to that outside lab, how, where, how, well their, how well their helmet's testing. They've done a lot of testing themselves ahead of time, um, you know, in their own labs, maybe at their manufacturing partner's labs, or like us, we we test in multiple labs, um, you know, ACT testing down in Los Angeles, Dynamic Research uh, Institute in uh, Long Beach, uh, TAS labs in uh in europe as well as uh Rion labs in london so, so yeah it, i'm a big test fan uh you get a lot of data you 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 have to pick through it you have to read through it but technically you don't have to do any of that you could just go send it once to a test lab to give you a, a certification and you, you can go
0: um, why do we have so many different test certifications anyway? I mean, it's not like crashes that happen in Europe are different than ones that happen in the U.S. versus Australia and so on.
3: Good question. Um, the, specifically, the difference between CPSC and CE have to do with the belief of how you crash. And this was set up 40 years ago. And and there are people who argue those those standards, um, and the way you crash. For example, um, w- in the U S we use a, um, a hemispherical anvil. So it's like a four inch ball that you drop the helmet in, uh, onto and, and there's a linear accelerometer inside a head form that the helmet sits on and you, you basically drive that ball that head into that ball Europe doesn't use that test. Um, they use, like we do, a flat amble and what we call a curbstone amble, which is 45 degrees. And, and by taking out that one uh, ball, it actually allows them to use a lower-density EPS foam.
0: Uh, which is why those helmets tend to be lighter, then.
3: They tend to be lighter, um, and they, they take certain kinds of effects on your brain better. Uh, but if you ever had that point load impact that the spherical ball gives you, then, then it would bottom out. So the question is, is how (laughs) the age old question, (laughs) which helmet should I wear? Well, call me as you're crashing and I'll tell you which is (laughs) the best helmet. Um, obviously not realistic. So you kind of got to look at the laws of average, um, you know, of, of how certain kinds of crashes happen. The, the best example I can give you is actually on the motorcycle side. Um, when we do a motorcycle helmet in the U.S., they're significantly heavier than they are in Europe because we have a test that we basically drive a spike into the helmet. And we see if that spike can be held mostly by the outer shell. And um, in Europe, they don't do that test. And so their foam ends up being significantly lighter on the motorcycle side. That's one – like so I was telling you about the spherical ball, and that's one that's hard to argue because, yes, maybe sometimes there is some of those features that we can crash on. Um, whereas this spike test, uh, I work with several accident recreation experts, and both of them tell me, they have never seen anything like that happen in any test that they've – or any crash that they've reviewed. So I think that on the motorcycle side, frankly, we are hurting people more than we're helping by having this spike test. But it is – it's it's really difficult to tell the DOT that they're wrong, <laughs> even though many of us have tried to show studies that that – believe that we would be making a safer helmet if we would take out that spike test and again it, you know somebody has a different opinion than me that's my personal opinion uh my observation from testing i want to make helmets softer uh and not harder
0: okay well i mean as as someone who has ridden bikes for a long time i mean i remember the first helmets that i had it was you know back then we were doing you know expanded eps foam or i, I guess that's, that's a If it's a a repeat, just expanded foam. And then, you know, with, you know, soft fabric Lycra covers on. And I remember when, you know, Bell, the whole micro shell thing came about and that was just a big revolution at the time. But the idea that we have helmet testing standards that are really not that different from helmets that I was using, what, 30 years ago now. um, I mean, to me on the surface, that seems pretty ludicrous. Um, Now, I guess you know one thing that this leads me into is the fact that there is this kind of you know new helmet testing standard or protocol, however you want to describe it, um, that the people from Virginia Tech have come up with, and I'm, I'm sure you have plenty of thoughts on this sort of thing, and. You know, I guess maybe just given how that information is, has been presented in terms of just like you know the star rating, I mean, it really does seem to have been embraced by the buying public. Um, I mean, it's, it's really easy to interpret. They look at it as like, oh, it's a five star helmet, I'm in. Like it's clearly better than a four star helmet. I'm, you know, in terms of looking at it from the outside, it's, it's really simple. Um, I mean, given what you know about how they're testing and what their protocol is like. I mean, in your opinion, I mean, how are they
3: doing over there? I mean, what are they doing right, and how do you think they could be doing things better? Yeah, well, they they Virginia Tech's a good lab. They do things to kind of try and standardize uh, the a, a star system that gives people an idea of what they're doing. the The challenges for us is, um, they use a head form that nobody else uses in the industry. They use a Noxy head form, and that's meant for that was was designed for football, which is okay, um, as long as you completely uh, you reuse that all the time. So it's comparative data. But when we go to test in other labs, like I mentioned earlier, we test in like four or five different labs around the world. It, you get different results. So depending on one lab. It makes it very difficult. And, uh, you know, I haven't seen anything yet that convinces me that their tests are better than uh, Dynamic Research's tests or Rion Labs in London. So, you know, we're still studying that stuff. Um, they do only test one head size. They only do medium only. And one of the most important things about picking a helmet w- is fit. That helmet needs to fit you. No matter what, if, if, if it's my helmet and it doesn't fit you right, I'm going to tell you not to buy it. It needs to fit front to back. It needs to fit side to side. It's it's really one of the most important features that you have about making sure that the helmet's right. Um, it, 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 a a great helmet can be made bad by not having a great fit.
0: I guess uh, you know you had mentioned before that you know you guys do test at a whole bunch of different labs, and every lab has their own kind of test protocol and kind of approach to what they think is kind of real world testing. Um, Overall, though, I mean, do you think what Virginia Tech is doing is a good thing as far as sort of, you know, kind of like, I guess, uh, you know, kind of making helmet testing a little bit more approachable and understandable for people?
3: That's a hard one. But and I'm going to I'm going to say yes, right off. Um, other labs could do this and why no other lab has chose to, you know kind of rank their their results or even share their results is is a little bit interesting but somebody's got to do it and virginia tech is has decided that they're going to be the ones um we do have to pay for them to test our helmets um so you know that's a that's a, a, an additional cost that people have to to bear and and remember when they're looking at results so
0: what would your ideal scenario be then
3: as far well, as from we a stated- consumer perspective Yeah. Yeah. I think it's standardized testing everywhere so that, you know, that no matter where you're testing it, that, that we're having, um, consistent results across the board. But, you know, it's, we're so far off from that right now. Like I said, I get different results in so many different labs.
0: Well, I think it's awesome that this is all being looked at and with so much more attention now in general. Um, I have one big question I want to ask you at the very end here. But first, I kind of want to put you on the spot a little bit. Maybe just a little bit.
3: You didn't already?
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. I mean, up, up to date, I mean, primarily helmets have all used, you know, expanded polystyrene foam, like basically right. styrofoam essentially, right? Yes. Um, you know, I remember back in the day, I think it was Simpson. They were using, was it like polyethylene foam, was it? I can't remember now. Oh, no, polypropylene foam is what they were using. Yeah, PP Yeah. Um, and you know, and now more recently, you know, we have stuff from like Colloid and the Bontrager Wave Cell. I mean, I, I would have to think that you have looked at all of this stuff, and everyone kind of makes their own claims. They they have their marketing spin and whatnot. From where you sit, does any of this stuff make sense? Is it kind of advancing things forward?
3: Uh, testing materials for sure, it does. Um... I'm, te- I'm constantly testing new materials. So the fact that people are testing – so you, you kind of – you were trying to put me on the spot about choroid and maybe wave cell and things like that, and I'll come back to that. I won't dodge the question, but material research is one of the – the heart of what I do. I'm constantly looking at different materials. So we started using a material that's an acrylic-based material with carbon nanotubes in it, and it's a material out of a company from Italy – Um, you know, and they're trying to sell their amazing new material like everybody else. And, um, they wanted to sell it to us as a multi-impact material and I put it into a motorcycle helmet and I impacted it 16 times in the exact same location and with no change in, in degradation of the ability to take uh, an impact. And, you know, at first we're like, wow, this is, (laughs) sorry, this is the shit. This is good (laughs) stuff. Right. And, And but when we did that the first time it was it wasn't near any vents it was it was just you know on a it's basically on a Harley style helmet no vents and it performed beautifully but as soon as we got close to any vents the sheer strength wasn't there but we found so many good proper properties to it because the density was lower than. Then EPS, we actually started sandwiching it into some of our helmets, and we do that right now at both motorcycle helmets and bicycle helmets, where we sandwich this material. So I use the EPS to kind of hold it together, and it has its properties. And then we use this this uh, this acrylic material in the middle to to help with our impacts. It actually helps me get the overall profile of the helmet smaller too, which that's a longer story, smaller, smaller helmets. Everybody likes that, but you actually like that because a large, when you have a smaller helmet, you don't have as big of a lever arm. You have a larger helmet. The, the, the point of rotation is further away, just like bike wheel weight. You have, you have less force, reduce that lever arm. So it's perfect. So, but interestingly enough, and I'm actually super excited about this, um, the 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 then all of a sudden my EPS supplier, who makes EPS in Ohio, said, "Hey, how come you're using this stuff?" And you know, I told them why, and they actually started working with the Italian company. So now we're taking this material that made in Ohio, this material made in Italy, and they're working on formulations for us now. So. I'm a full hard on believer of trying new materials, continual testing, um, and, and, and trying to get better. So the fact that, that Coroid is out there, um, and Wavecell is out there, they, we should be trying new things. Um, you know, I have tested Coroid for, for myself and I didn't feel the same advantages that other people have. Uh, I didn't see it. So much better that it was worth some of the negatives that I feel about it. Um, and then I have not tested WaveCell. My my assessment of WaveCell is that I think it does really well in rotation, which is really important. How well it does linear, I have not been able to test yet.
0: Okay. Fair enough. Well, thanks for being open about that. I appreciate it. Uh, I will say, before I forget, you would be terrible at politics. Just get that out <laughs> of the way. Um, but, uh, I mean, so – who, who, in your opinion, right now, as far as brand and companies, I mean, who, knowing what you know, and and you know, feel free to qualify this however you feel is appropriate. I mean, who do you think is doing things right in terms of trying to make helmets safer, and who kind of is sort of behind the ball a little bit here?
3: Wow, that is on the spot. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, well, you know, to answer it easy, you know, I, I see. Uh, fly coming out. But that's an easy, that's a softball question because they're now using two technologies that we've been using for 10 years and they're getting (laughs) on board. So it's like, Hey, they're doing a great job. Um, you know, you you do look at the guys who do a lot of testing. I, I'm pretty open about this. Like you said, I'm not great in, uh, politics. I wouldn't be great in politics. Uh, I'll have this conversation with anybody that wants to have it. Uh, I sat in Troy Lee's office about a year ago and we talked about safety. And, you know, people in general might not have given Troy the, the, you know, thumbs up on the safety side. And, you know, design was the most important thing. And, and it may have been true in the past, but I was really impressed with how much he cared about you know, what's happening. And so he's now putting an EPP layer, expanded polypropylene layer before his EPS layer. And that's a softer material than EPP or it's an EPS. So there you go. There's somebody who's actually looking at it and taking a a shot at making a better helmet. Um, You know, I've, I've had this conversation with, with the Bontrager engineers. Um, They decided at the time. Not to follow in some of the LDL layers, but they went with 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 MIPs, which has its advantages. So I, I'm not I'm gonna stop short of, of saying who I don't think's doing a great job. Um, that takes you, you know I I would just look at look at who's doing innovative stuff and taking action. Um, if you're not taking action, you're not following the research, you're not seeing what's out there, and you could be doing a better job.
0: Well, let me ask you this then. I mean, would it would it be safe to say then that um, a helmet that is out today, or even just the last couple of years or whatnot, that really doesn't seem fundamentally different from a helmet that was out ten years ago, is probably not at the forefront of safety technology? I think that's fair. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Um, speaking of uh, older helmets, uh, last question I want to ask you before I get to the big one is, um, you know, there's always this, this idea, this notion that you know, a helmet needs to be replaced after a certain number of years, um, you know, for a variety, variety of reasons, like it gets kind of tossed and dinged around or like, you know, sunlight, whatever. Uh, is any of that actually true?
3: It totally depends on how your helmet's been taken care of. If, if you, there, so, uh, an organization called, uh, Helmet Safety, what is it? Uh, Helmet Safety Institute. I'm getting this wrong. um some it's a it's a helmet safety group they took 10 year old helmets that were out of the box they just hadn't been used and they went and tested them and they tested out as well as if they were brand new so here i finally got it bicycle helmet safety institute sorry randy swart um but they went out and tested them and they came back and said you know if this helmet's been treated right uh it 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 has a much longer life than what people think. If your helmet sat in the back window of your car, it's not going to last a year. UV is one of the worst things that happens to it. So how you how you treat your helmet when you're not riding it, or I guess how you treat it while you're riding it, is what really makes the difference. So I know that some people want numbers. Uh, Bell, I think, came out and said five years. Other people say three years. Um, with as fast as technology is moving, though, you know you may want to think about it in terms of, of those numbers uh i'm going to tell you treat your helmet nice put it in a bag uh keep it out of the sun and it's going to last you a while
0: brad another thing i wanted to ask you about i mean there there is you know of course all this kind of body of data and testing around mips and slip planes and uh, that sort of thing in general i mean you you guys have your own we've talked about that already um but you know for myself for example i mean i basically shave off all my hair i mean I, I can tell you my, my hair typically is about one to two millimeters long all around. Um, other people, on the other hand, have a lot of hair. Um, what effect does hair have on helmet safety and some of this testing? Like, does it does it change things?
3: Well, well, first of all, the fact that you have little hair, just take your fingers and put it on the top of your head and just kind of squish your fingers around. You have a slip plane in your scalp. So you, there's also another slip plane in there. And um, that, that helps – mitigate some of those rotational forces right there. Uh, additionally, uh, hair, we believe adds a little bit more to that slip plane. Uh, nobody's really proved that out. I have not seen any testing that tells me that, um, just the fact, I mean, because the head forms that we use are fairly They're either a tight, uh, sorry, a magnesium, um, head form, metal head form, or sometimes they put a silicon, uh, cover on them, which actually makes the, the helmet grab onto that head form. So we're not uh, we're not actually testing like your hair or like your scalp. Um, but in general, I think that, that a little bit of hair actually gives you a little more slip.
0: Interesting. Okay. So you're saying I need to grow my hair out then?
3: <laughs> I, I cut mine the same way as you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the last big question I want to ask you, uh, and I, this is probably maybe the most important one that we're gonna have in this whole conversation. I mean, given the mountain of information out there and all these conflicting marketing claims and just all this mountain of information just, just all this stuff I mean how do you how do you recommend someone how do you how do you recommend to someone that they go about picking a helmet to buy if safety is their number one concern, be it for the road, mountain, whatever
3: tough question. Um, you know, obviously I drink my own Kool-Aid and I believe we're doing the research and, you know, if you're going on, on, in doing, you know, your own due diligence and, and you're right. I mean, when wave cell came out and said that you're 48 times less likely to have a concussion with wave cell, we're all like, where the hell does that come from? You know? So tell me how that can happen. Um, I, you know, not to pick on them. Maybe they have some test results that said that, but, it's really hard for the consumer to know and you know i'm not trying to dodge a question i don't know how to answer that question other than you know you you need to look to the companies who are following the research who are doing something about it you know and and look to those companies
0: okay fair enough i mean and yeah i i totally respect that it you know, without being on the inside for all these companies and knowing firsthand what they're all doing, it, it would be really hard to evaluate, even from someone in your position. Um, well, Brad, uh, I want to thank you tremendously for uh, for all your time. Um, and uh, I guess keep on doing what you're doing because I think you're, you're doing a lot of really good work and a lot of important work. And uh, I, I appreciate it.
3: I appreciate you taking this subject on. And, and even if I didn't, nail all those questions that you'd like me to say, you know, because I'd like to have better answers for those, too. But I appreciate the time and you giving the energy to this subject.
0: All right, guys, there was an awful lot in there. um, But one key point for me that that really stuck out in my mind was that Brad really believes that current test standards are way too old, and I've believed this for a while, too, Um, mainly because, you know, back when they were done, like, 50 years ago, I mean, they've been modified a little bit, but they were still built primarily to prevent skull fractures, and, you know, he was saying that, you know, the level of forces that they're looking at are, like, 300 Gs, whereas typical bicycle crashes are more in the range of like 80 to hundred Gs. And really nowadays, you're not so much worried about literally cracking your skull open, but you're more worried about the lower force impacts that, you know, don't crack your skull, but can still scramble your brains. Uh, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. Uh, I think the research in the area has come a very, very far way in this half, in the half a century since, you know, like when you look, what, 40, 50 years ago, they barely knew anything about the effect, long-term effects of concussions. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, there's absolutely no debate that we're in a, a dated, um, time for, for what's, uh, you know, for what these helmets are being built to, um,
0: the golden age of helmets, Kayleigh?
1: really, right now. Yeah, it's it's the golden age.
0: Yeah,
2: it, it's, it's the wood
0: stove. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think it's safe it, to say we have our podcast title for this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, just the golden age of everything. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, really, everything. Realistically,
1: we are. We're all, we're in the golden age of helmets for sure. And time. Well, helmets are, are are you know, lighter, cooler, and safer than they've ever been. I think that's pretty. That's pretty safe to say. Uh, a lot of it is because of people like Brad, because of people, you know, the people at MIPS, people that are pushing for safety and not just lightweight. I feel like there was a lot of time there in this sort of I would say it was in the in the five or six or seven years after the UCI started mandating helmets all the time in bike races, when it felt like the only thing that mattered was how light can we make this helmet? How many holes can we put in it? And that's really changed, but only recently, only in the last couple of years. So maybe, as a result of that, I mean, we know that you know these things move slowly, particularly at the sort of uh, you know government agency kind of level. But maybe now that there's more information out there, it's been around for a couple of years. The industry is coming around to, to it for the most part. But maybe we'll we'll start to see some movement on, on what those standards actually are. Uh, it would certainly certainly be nice if. If, yeah, the, the testing looked at, you know, had to you had to look at rotation and you had to look at concussions, not just am I going to literally crack my skull into when I whack it into something with this helmet on. Because that doesn't, for all but the most extreme crash events, that's that's not really the most important thing.
0: Right, and then even if you are in an, in a crash where you have hit your head that hard, I mean, at that point, chances are you have a lot of other things that you need to worry about, too. Correct. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason why if the testing
1: was adjusted that, you know, that that designers couldn't be worried about both. Right. I mean, you, you could you could design a helmet that was much better. And this is essentially what a lot of these brands are doing anyway on their own. You could design a helmet that was a lot better at at, you know, much lower impact forces or in rotation
2: or whatever but also is going to protect your head, hopefully, if you whack it at, at, at 300G. Brad, Brad made a comment which uh, kind of worried me a little bit, where he said, you know, um, everyone's looking to Virginia Tech's testing at the moment, and, you know, he, he goes to other labs and he finds different results. And the comment that worried me was that he said, you know, I could design the helmet to get five stars in Virginia, but it might compromise my beliefs in other areas. And to me, that just reminded me exactly of like, you know, what, what's happened with bike frames and, you know, the, the testing in Germany with the stiffness to weight ratio that we actually ended up with worse bikes because of lab testing and everyone designing the product to do better in these lab tests. So we ended up with these bikes that were just way too stiff to be enjoyable to ride and way too light and realistically just delicate. And, you know, thankfully the industry has moved away from that. But I worry that maybe we're coming into that that age of this happening with helmets
0: Yeah. I mean, Brad did talk about that. Um, You know, that is obviously one of the things I asked him about where, you know, his thoughts on this Virginia Tech thing. And, you know, I do think that Virginia Tech is doing a lot of good work in the sense that they are sort of, you know, kind of taking a lot of the mystery to some extent out of bicycle helmet testing in general um, and sort of you know, explaining things in, in a way that regular people can understand. I mean, the star system, it, it obviously you know, oversimplifies things, I'd say. I mean, there there is no way you can just completely distill the performance of a helmet down to a single metric. Um, but that said, it is nice that they are making it so that things are just kind of easier to grasp. Um, but yeah, Dave, I completely hear you on the, you know, kind of designing to a test. I mean, yeah, that the testing that you were talking about with that German magazine, Tour Magazine, um, you know, basically, you know, you and I have both heard a ton over the years about how, you know, there were certainly bike companies that were submitting custom-made frames that were specifically built to, you know, ace the Tour magazine test. Because once you know all the ins and outs of the test, you can build a product to specifically ace that test. Now, I mean, it is a little bit reassuring that Virginia Tech does have a little bit of an element for you know, like rotational impact and that sort of thing. So like, I feel like they're moving in the right direction. Um, but I mean, I I certainly am a big proponent of the idea that Brad was putting forth that, you know, we really do ideally need to have one single global bicycle test helmet standard or test protocol. And then um, to go along with that, I mean, one of the, like I said, one of the greatest things about Virginia Tech is that they explain everything and kind of, you know, make everything in a presentable fashion. Whereas with like you know cpsc or snell or whatever like like you can they'll say that the helmet passed or failed but you don't really have any idea what that meant so yeah. the problem that we have as consumers is that i mean yeah like people can now look at the virginia tech thing look at a helmet rating and they'll, they'll be like okay that is you know that that's one of the best helmets that has the lowest numerical score you know that's the helmet for me um i mean keeping in mind that you know, that just means that that's the helmet that tested best according to Virginia Tech's protocol, it still at least gives you some information as opposed to what we had prior, which was basically nothing.
2: It's a huge improvement from where we came from, Um, you know, just what, two years ago, uh, you know, everyone was shopping in the blind when it came to safety. So it is a huge improvement.
0: All right. So, I mean, people ask me this all the time, and I'm sure they ask, you know, Dave, I'm sure they ask you, your buddies, you know, Kaylee, your buddies, probably sometimes ask you the same thing. It's like, you know, if someone is looking for a helmet and they're specifically looking for one that is going to protect their head and brain the best in a bicycle crash, you know, know, even someone like Brad didn't really have a good answer for how they are supposed to pick. I mean, so what are we supposed to tell people? I mean, it does seem like there is some merit to the idea that, you know, people need to do their research in the sense of checking out what companies seem to be doing in that area. Um, You know, there certainly are companies that have put out more information that at least lends the idea that they're spending a lot more time on, you know, protecting people's heads than some other companies that seem to be concentrating more still on, you know, lightweight and aerodynamics and stuff like that. But aside from that, I mean, there doesn't really seem to be much of a good way to go as far as picking a helmet. I mean, aside from what he said, which, you know, making sure one fits really well and Doing research for what the helmets are doing, or what the helmet companies are doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's really all you can do is put a bunch of them on, make sure that it fits right. Look at Virginia Tech. Decide how much you you value that one particular protocol and metric, and 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 cross your fingers. Really, I mean, it, yeah. you know, unfortunately, yeah, we have more information than we used to, but it's still not really enough to make a fully informed decision. So, I think that consumers just need to be aware of that and and do the best they can basically unfortunately there's just no way there's no way for us to sit here and say this is the best helmet for everybody there's just no way to do it
2: yeah no and then i I would add that like if you're riding off-road where you know maybe an over the bar might be more common or or looping out behind the saddle then maybe look for a helmet that does give a bit more, you know, um, at least from a visual sense, um, a bit more rear coverage because a lot of road focus helmets do sit quite high up on your head, and they don't offer a lot of uh, coverage behind the head. Um, and that's certainly something that if you look at any modern mountain bike helmet, they give a ton more coverage down the back of the head. Um, and it's certainly, you know, uh, there are some brands out there that have been taking that and you know extending the coverage. So, but again, like it's it's goes back to what Kaylee just said. I'm going back to the leather hairnet. That we know, works. (laughs) Terribly, but at least you know what you're getting.
1: They should put the leather hairnet through the Virginia Tech test. I would love to see that.
0: You know, they they had their opportunity to do that. I'd say about three or four weeks ago. It was would have been perfect timing for April first. Yeah. They could have actually taken one, put it through there, and it could have been their one opportunity to give a helmet a zero-star rating. <laughs> hey, you never know. Maybe it's amazing. Maybe it, it just works super well. All right, guys. Well, in the absence of what we have now concluded is uh, no uh, conclusion, unfortunately, I guess the only thing that we can say right now is, especially now, to be safe riding your bike, don't do anything dumb. Yep. Wear your helmet. Or not. I guess it's your choice. You know. I suppose. But either way, either way, it just not not a time to take any chances. And in the meantime, just you know, I don't know. Put on your hand, put on your hairnet. <laughs> wear wear a hat. Cover your head. You do you. You know
1: whatever whatever you want to do. It's really we're not going to tell you what to do. But uh, the three of us will be riding carefully with helmets on. That's what we'll be doing, right?
0: Indeed, indeed. Yep. All right, everyone. Stay safe and we will see you back here in two weeks. Bye everybody.